night where we're there in Isaiah chapter 29. And on Sunday nights, we've been going through a study in the book of Isaiah. And we've basically been, been taking every week and been taking one chapter of Isaiah. We started in chapter 1. And, you know, chap- the, the second week, we're in chapter 2. And the third week, we're in chapter 3. And we're just trying to learn a little bit of Isaiah as we go along. And we're already in the 29th week. And, you know, sometimes when we preach through the books of the Bible, we'll take the time to go verse by verse and really try to get everything we can out of a chapter before we move on. Uh, the reason we've been doing one chapter at a time in Isaiah is because there's 66 chapters, and if we don't do it that way, we're just going to be in Isaiah for the rest of our lives, you know? Uh, So we kind of have to just try to get what we can in one week and move on. In Isaiah 29, we find a little bit of a theme, and I'd like to show it to you as quickly as we can tonight. In this chapter, in Isaiah, we find uh, different types of unbelievers, and actually there are three different types of unbelievers that are kind of shown here and characterized for us, and I'd like you to see that just real quickly tonight as we look at this chapter. Look at verse number 7 in Isaiah chapter 29. We'll start in verse number 7 and we'll come back and hit some of the prior verses in a little bit. But in verse 7, the Bible says this, And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel. Now, I want you to notice, Ariel is a city that has been mentioned uh, in, you know, verses 1 down through verse number 7. And Ariel, that, that name as a city, is only mentioned in Isaiah chapter 29. In the book of Ezra, there is an individual by the name of Ariel, but it's, it's a person uh, who has that name. And here in Isaiah 29, we find uh, God speaking about this city, Ariel. And we're not really told what the city is. I believe it's the city of Jerusalem. And I think I can prove that to you from Scripture. We'll look at that a little later in the study. But I want you to notice, and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel. So to like, I'll prove it to you in a minute, but let's, let's wait a second until we get there. But just assuming that this is Ariel, you've got to understand that, it, that, that this is Jerusalem. And what Jerusalem represents here is God's people. His people are represented by uh, the city Jerusalem, by Ariel. The Bible says that the multitude of the nations, all right? So this is not God's people. This is the world's nations that fight against Ariel, God's people, even all that fight against her and her munition. The word munition there is a reference to military weapons, kind of like ammunition, something you'd use in a war. And it says, and that distress her shall be as a dream of a night vision. It shall even be as when an hungry man dreameth, and behold, he eateth, but he awaketh, and his soul is empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, but he awaketh, and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite, so shall the multitude, notice that phrase, multitude of all nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Now there you see another reference to Ariel, but here it's referred to as Mount Zion. Again, a reference to Jerusalem, a reference to God's people. This is where the children of Israel and, and God's people at this time we're at. And here's what you got to understand. The Bible says, and I believe that Isaiah is looking forward into, into time at this point. He's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about Ariel. He's talking about Mount Zion. But he's not talking about the actual physical descendants of Israel, but he's talking about those people that will become God's people. Those people that like 
uh, Abraham have accepted, have gone into that lineage through faith. And he's looking ahead and he's saying, there is coming a time when the multitude of the nations of this world are going to fight against God's people. When the multitude of the nations are going to gather together and they're going to go against the people of God. And he says, when that happens, they're going to be in a sleep. Did did you notice that? Look at verse 8. And it shall be even as when, it's kind of an interesting analogy, or kind of a silly analogy. He says, it's like when a hungry man dreameth, and behold, he eateth, but he awaketh. So he says, imagine a hungry man going to sleep, and in his sleep, in his dream, he's eating, but when he wakes up, he realizes he's still hungry because he didn't actually eat anything. He just dreamt that he was eating. Or he says, it's like a, man, a thirsty man that dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, but he awaketh, and behold, he is faint. It's like someone going to bed when they're, uh, when they're thirsty, and then they have a dream that they're drinking water, but then they wake up and they realize, I didn't drink any water, I'm just as thirsty. And I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Yeah, that's never happened to me, but I, I've, I've had this dream multiple times, and maybe you've had this, but I'll dream that, you know, I'll be like sleeping in the middle of a dream, and I'll hear my alarm go off, and then I'll dream that I get up and turn my alarm off, and it's like my body is subconsciously trying to like trick me into staying in bed, you know what I mean? And then, like, I keep hearing the alarm because I didn't actually turn it off. You know what I mean? I just turned it off in a dream, and then I realized, wait, the alarm's still on, and I have to get up, you know, and start my day. So I don't know. That's the closest I can get to this. Maybe you've gone to bed hungry, and you woke up, and you're like, man, I'm still hungry. I thought I ate. But here's what he's saying. He's saying when these nations are going to gather together, God is going to put them into a deep sleep. God is going to put them into a, 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 a state where they think they're satisfying something, but they're not. They think they're taking care of a hunger, but they're not. Look at verse 9. He says, stay yourselves and wonder. Cry ye out and cry. Notice, they are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. Last week we preached about alcohol. But here he's saying, these people are staggering, but they haven't even been drunk. They're just in this dream state. Look at verse 10. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep. And I've closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers have he covered. Keep your finger there in Isaiah 29 and go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2 in the New Testament, if you find all those T-books, they're all grouped together. First uh, and 2 Thessalonians, 1 2 Timothy and Titus. So find a T-book and get to 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. The first group of unbelievers that we see in the book of Isaiah... Is, is a group of unbelievers that Isaiah gives us an example of who he's talking about. And here, who, who he's talking about is uh, given to us more detail in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because Isaiah says, there's coming a day when the multitude of the nations are going to rise up against Ariel. They're going to rise up against Mount Zion. And they're going to be in a deep sleep. They're going to be in a dream state. They're going to be staggering, but they're not drunk. They're going to be confused, but they haven't drunk. They're not, they're not, you know, they're, they're not drunken. They're just sleeping. They're just confused. They don't know what's going on. In 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, we're given more insight into what it is that God is speaking about. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, and look at verse number 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse number 1. The Bible says, Now we beseech you, brethren. Now notice what he says. 
by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So the context is the coming of Christ, all right? And here's what's interesting. It's called the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and notice what he says, and by our gathering together unto him. Now, our gathering together is what we often refer to as the rapture. And it's interesting to me that people will say, oh, the rapture is not the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The rapture is different than the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But according to the Apostle Paul, and according to the word of God, he says, hey, I beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, and he's uniting these two thoughts, that when Christ comes back is when we will be gathered unto him. Look at verse 2, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Here's what he's saying. The day of Christ, and I don't have time to develop it, you have to study this out on your own, but the day of Christ is a reference to that gathering. It is a reference to the day when we are gathered together with Jesus Christ, the day of the rapture. And here's what he's saying. I don't want you to be soon shaken in mind. I don't want you to be troubled. I don't want you to be troubled by a spirit or by a word or by a letter as from us, as that the day of Christ, and here's what this term is at hand means. It means that it could just happen at any moment or that it's the next event. He said, I don't want you to be worried about the fact that the next thing, you know, and today people teach Jesus Christ could come back at any moment. He could come back before the service ends. You know, I mean, he, it, it, he could come back. You know, there's no sign of his coming. But here Paul says, hey, look, I don't want you to be afraid and be soon shaken as of the day of Christ that it is at hand. Now notice verse 3. He says, let no man deceive you. By any means, for that day shall not come. So according to the Apostle Paul, he says the day of Christ, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we are gathered together unto him, he says that day shall not come except, and then he says there are some things that must happen before the day of Christ. Now look, I know that it's more exciting, and I'm sure that I could make a lot more money if I got up here and said, Jesus could come back right now. Let's take an offering. Just put everything in the offering plate because you may not even make it home. You know, Jesus may come before you even get, just throw, you know, and that's what these preachers on TV want you to do, you know. But, But Paul said, hey, that day shall not come except, notice what he says, there come a falling away first. He says, before Christ returns, there has to come a falling away, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now, some people like to say, well, the falling away is the rapture. The, the root of that, and we, we're, we don't get into a lot of Greek here, but the root of that word falling away is, uh, the Greek word there is apostasia, which is the same word that we have, apostasy. So that's not, that's not a, a, a rapture. That's not a positive thing, the falling away there. But notice, he describes for us what he's saying. Skip down to verse number 8. You can read the rest of that in, your, in the context later on if you'd like. But for sake of time, look at verse number 8. He's going to explain to us what this falling away is. Look at verse 8. He says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and line wonders. So he says, hey, this son of perdition is going to appear. This wicked one is going to be revealed, and he's going to be, his working is after Satan. He's going to come out, notice verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and line wonders, and with all deceivableness, Make note of that word, of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they, notice, received not, they received not the love of the truth. So here's what these people did not receive. 
They did not receive the truth that they might be saved. So here's what you got to understand. These people rejected the truth. They rejected salvation. But because the Bible says they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. He said they rejected the truth because they did not want to be saved. Look at verse 11. And for this cause, that phrase means for this reason, God shall send them strong delusion. Do you see that word delusion? That they might believe a lie. That they all might be damned. You say, wait, God is sending a delusion for the purpose of these people being damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness? Here's what you got to understand. The Bible teaches that there comes a time when a people can get to the point where God does not even want them to be saved. In fact, the Bible says that God is going to send at the end times a strong delusion. He's going to say, Isaiah would put it this way, he's going to put them into a deep sleep so that they're going to stagger and they're going to fall and they're going to be confused and they won't understand. And who is he doing it to? The multitudes of the nations that are rising against Mount Zion, that are rising against God's people. And here in 2 Thessalonians, we're told that when the Antichrist shows up and unites the entire world to go fight against God's people at the great tribulation time, the Bible says that God is going to send a strong delusion that they might believe a lie, that they might be damned who believe not the truth. You say, well, I thought, I thought the Bible taught that God wanted everybody to be saved. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible says that whosoever will may come. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's what you understand. We're not Calvinists. God did not damn these people to hell without giving them a chance. But if you notice, the Bible says that they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved, meaning they had a chance to receive the love. They had a chance to receive the truth. They had a chance to get saved. But they acknowledged the truth and rejected the truth. And because they rejected the truth, eventually God rejected them. See, here's what you got to understand. God may be the God of the second chance, but he's not necessarily the God of the 333rd chance or the 7,000 chance. And there comes a time when individuals reject God and reject God and reject God, that God eventually rejects them. And says, you know what? I don't even want you to get saved. In fact, I'm going to send a deep sleep and I'm going to send a delusion. No, you can't get away from it. I know this is not something that most churches preach today. 2 Thessalonians 2.11, look what it says. For this cause, God shall send them, a, send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Why? That they might be damned who believe not the truth. You say, God doesn't want everybody to be saved. God initially wants everyone to be saved. But when people reject God and reject God and reject God, there comes a time when God says, you know what? I don't even want you to understand the gospel. I don't even want you to acknowledge the truth. I'm going to send a delusion and I'm going to send a deep sleep and I'm going to get you confused so that you can't even understand or receive the gospel. Go back to Isaiah. Uh, and actually, the, the book after Isaiah is the book of Jeremiah. Go to Jeremiah just real quickly. Jeremiah chapter number 6. Jeremiah chapter number 6. Look at verse number 30. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 30. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 30. See, in Isaiah 29, we find different types of unbelievers. And the first type of unbeliever that I'd like you to see is the unbelievers who have rejected the truth. 
There are some unbelievers who have received the truth, they have acknowledged the truth, they understand the truth, but they have rejected the truth. And I'm not saying that the first time someone rejects the truth, they, they lose their opportunity to be saved. But there does come a time when God eventually, when you go down far enough down that road where God says, you know what, I'm going to send a strong... And in fact, God does it to almost the entire world at the end times and sends a strong delusion that the nations, the multitude of the nations might be confused and might be put to sleep. Jeremiah chapter 6, look at verse 30. We call these people reprobates. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 30 is where we find that word reprobate. The Bible says reprobate silver shall men call them. Here's why. Whenever someone calls you a reprobate, here's why. Or whenever, I should say, God calls you a reprobate, here's why. Because the Lord hath rejected them. See, God comes to the place where he rejects individuals. And the Bible refers to those people as reprobates. Go back to Isaiah 29. Now, let me say this. I believe that there are people out there who have crossed a line with God and have lost their opportunity to be saved. And I believe that there are more people out there than you think that may be reprobates. But we've got to be very careful about, you know, becoming, you know, just having this phobia about everybody's a reprobate, okay? Yeah, you ought to be very careful about accusing people about being a reprobate. I, I think we can get to the point where it's silly and it's like, uh, look at that guy. He's wearing shoes I don't like. He must be a reprobate. Okay, you know, that's kind of silly. Yeah, you know, uh, that, that's, that's quite an accusation to uh, put at someone. And my, my philosophy has been, you know, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. If, if, if I can get them saved, hey, let's try to get them saved. I'm not God. It's not my job to judge. But we need to understand that there is a possibility that there are individuals out there that God has rejected. And, of course, there are ways that we, you know, by what they say and what they believe, uh, there are things that we can do, but we must be careful with those things. Go back to Isaiah 29. Number one, we saw unbelievers who have rejected the truth. And, and it's pictured by those people that one day God will send a sleep to cause them to be damned that they might not believe the gospel. But those are, not, those are not all the unbelievers. That's just one sector of unbelievers. There's another type of unbelievers. The first type of unbelievers we saw in Isaiah 29 were unbelievers who have rejected the truth. The second type of unbelievers that we see in Isaiah 29 are unbelievers who, do not, who have not rejected the truth necessarily. They just do not understand the truth. And this is the vast majority of unbelievers. I mean, this is probably most people out there are not people who hate God and have rejected the truth. They just do not understand the truth. So we have unbelievers who have rejected the truth. And then number two, for those of you that like to take notes, we have unbelievers who do not understand the truth. Look at Isaiah 29. Look at verse number 11. Isaiah 29 and verse number 11. Isaiah 29 and verse 11 says this, And the vision of all is become unto you, notice, as the words of a book that is sealed. Now the reference here is the word of God. And he's saying, they're gonna, the vision of Isaiah is going to become unto you, unto these people, as the words of a book that is sealed. So it's like a book that is locked. They can't open it. They can't, uh, it's encrypted. It's sealed. They, they can't understand it. It says, as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned. You know, this is someone who's educated. And they, they take this book to that one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. Look at verse 12. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned. So they say, okay, well, the college graduate can't explain it to us, so let's take it to someone who's not learned. And the book is delivered unto him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. So here we have unbelievers 
who not there is not that they're rejecting the truth necessarily. They just don't understand the truth. They you give them the Bible and say, I don't understand it. They they read it and they say, This is like a book that's encrypted. This is like a book that's that's sealed. And, uh, and they say, Well, you're a college educator. Huh? You went to Bible college or you went to seminary. Aren't you able to explain? I just I don't understand what this verse. And then they give it to someone that's not learning. They say, Well, I never got educated. I don't understand it. And these people just do not understand the truth. Go to First Corinthians chapter number two in the New Testament. First Corinthians. Chapter number two, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number two. So number one, because you've got to understand this, and especially for our church, because our church is so focused on re- reaching people with the gospel. And the people that we're dealing with are unbelievers. And you've got to understand, there are different types of unbelievers out there. There are unbelievers out there who have rejected the truth. But there are other unbelievers out there who simply do not understand the truth. And that's the vast majority of unbelievers. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. Look at verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 says this. But the natural man. Now the natural man is referring a reference to that old man. The carnal man. The non-spiritual man. This is the unregenerated. The unbeliever. He says, but the natural man, notice, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The Bible teaches that an unbeliever, the, uh, the, the, the natural man, is unable to perceive, is unable to recognize, is unable to distinguish. They cannot open a Bible and read it and understand it. They are spiritually discerned, is what the Bible says. The unbeliever does not understand the Bible. You need to understand that. The unbeliever does not comprehend Scripture. Someone that is not saved, you cannot give them a Bible and expect them to understand it. Um, you're there in 1 Corinthians. Go back a few pages to the book of Acts. Acts chapter number 8. Acts chapter number 8. Look at verse number 27. Uh, look, look at verse 26. Acts chapter number 8. And look at verse number 26. Acts chapter 8 and verse 26. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. You go back past the book of Romans into the book of Acts. Acts chapter number 8 and verse number 26. The Bible says this. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip. Remember, Philip was that evangelist. He was one of the seven. That he, he's a great man of God and he's preaching the gospel. And the Bible says, The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. So the angel of the Lord, this is the book of Acts time period. The word of God has not been completely written. And, and God is still speaking through angels and all these things uh, to these individuals. The angel of the Lord appears to Philip and he says, I want you to go to this certain place. And, and, and he goes down there. Look at verse 27. And he arose and went and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure. And he came to Jerusalem for to worship. Here he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. He's a treasurer. He's a politician. He's a very wealthy man, a man of a lot of authority. And he's in Jerusalem for to worship is what the Bible says. Look at verse 28. Was returning and sitting in his chariot and read what we're studying right now, Isaiah the prophet. This guy is going down the road in a chariot. He has the book of Isaiah. He's reading it. He's in Jerusalem to worship. He's trying to get to know God and figure out God. In the verse 29, the Bible says, And the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran hither to him. And heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, notice what he says. He asked him a question. Understandest thou what thou readest? He says, do you understand what you're reading? 
You're reading the Word of God. You're reading the prophecy of Isaiah. Do you understand it? And notice the response of the Ethiopian eunuch, verse 31. And he said, how can I except some man should guide me? You say, well, why did he say that? Here's why he said that. The natural man cannot understand the things of God. The natural man cannot understand spiritual things. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They're spiritually discerned. This guy is going down the road. He's reading the book of Isaiah. He says, I'm confused. I don't know what's going on. I don't understand. What is Isaiah talking about? What is this talking about? And here comes Philip, filled with the Spirit of God, a soul winner, a man of God. He says, hey, understand this not what thou readest? He says, how can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. So Philip gets up in the chariot. Notice verse 32, the place of the scripture which he read was this he was led of the sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shears he opened not he opened he not his mouth in his humiliation his judgment was taken away and who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth and the eunuch answered philip now here's the 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 part that we read there is a prophecy of the death of jesus christ the fact that Christ was going to be taken like a lamb and put to death for our sins. But notice how confused this eunuch is. Verse 34. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee. So he's going to ask Philip a question. He says, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? So Isaiah writes that the Messiah is going to be put to death. He's going to be taken like a sheep to the, to the shears to, the, to, to be put to death to the slaughter. And, and the eunuch says, is, is Isaiah saying that this is going to happen to him? Or that this is going to happen to some other man. Look at verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. You say, why did Philip have to open his mouth and explain it to him? Why did Philip have to open his mouth and, 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 and take the Bible and say, no, this is about Jesus Christ. Let me explain to you the gospel. Jesus was the son of God. He was the Messiah. And he came to this earth and he died on the cross. Why did Philip have to do that? Here's why Philip had to do that. Because the natural man does not understand the things of God. And that's why at Verity Baptist Church, we don't believe in going out canvassing and putting a bunch of, you know, tracks on doors. We, we're not going to stand at a corner and pass out literature. We're not going to stand around, you know, I, I, used to, I used to know of a church where what they called soul winning was they knocked on someone's door. When they opened the door, they'd give them a, a little pamphlet that talked about, G, you know, that had a bunch of verses on it. And they'd say, Jesus loves you. And they would move on. Listen to me. That's not the gospel. And here's what you understand. We believe in confrontational soul winning. We believe in going out to people. I'm not talking about being rude, and I'm not talking about being mean, but I'm talking about opening your mouth and taking the Bible and explaining to people the gospel. They, people will not get, you say, well, why don't we pass out a bunch of Johns and Romans? It won't do any good. Because they don't understand it. They're spiritually discerned. They'll read it and they'll say, what's this about? What's this Jesus about? I don't get it. But when a person that has the Holy Spirit of God takes the Word of God and explains the gospel to an unbeliever, then they can be saved. Then they can understand it. Because here's what you understand. There are some unbelievers out there who have rejected the truth. But there are some unbelievers out there who simply do not understand the truth. They, they tried religion, and they just don't get it. Say, I, I don't understand. What's this big deal about Jesus? And what they need is somebody to open a Bible and open their mouth boldly and preach the gospel to them. Go back to Isaiah 29. So we have, number one, unbelievers who have rejected the truth. We have, number two, unbelievers who do not understand the truth. Number three, we have unbelievers who think they have the truth. There are unbelievers out there who have rejected the truth. Those are pretty easy because they're so mad and angry and hate God, you don't spend a lot of time with them. Those are the ones where, you know, hi, we're coming from, slam, you know. Uh, or, or they say some 
rude things mean things that I won't repeat, but some of you say, you know. And, and the, th those are easy. Then you've got those who just simply do not understand. They don't know anything about Jesus. You, you, I mean, you're not going to be able to serve there. Adam, who's Adam? Moses, is he the one that built that ark? You know, they don't know what the Bible says. They just, they're just confused. But then there are unbelievers who think they have the truth. Those are probably the hardest to win. And there are two categories to this. Look at Isaiah 29. Look at verse 13. The first category of unbelievers who do not, who think they have the truth, are the religious. In Isaiah 29, 13, we have this verse, a very famous verse. The Bible says, Isaiah said, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but I've removed their heart far from me, and their uh, fear toward me is taught, and I want you to make note of this phrase, by the precepts of men. The word precept means commandments. Isaiah said that there are people that are going to draw near to God with their mouth and with their lips, but their hearts will be far from God. And they're going, and the fear, the only fear toward God that they'll have is going to be taught to them by the precepts, but it's not the precepts of God, it's the precepts of men. Go to Matthew chapter number 15. Uh, Jesus quoted Isaiah 29, 13 in the book of Matthew, chapter number 15. Let me show you the context in which he quoted it. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Keep your finger on Isaiah 29. We're going to go back and forth. Matthew chapter 15 and verse number 7. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 7. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 7, Jesus said, Ye hypocrites, talking to the Pharisees. These are religious people. He says, ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. And make note of that. He doesn't say, well did Isaiah prophesy in general. He says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. Now that's important. We just got done a few weeks ago. Uh, we, we finished our series through the book of Matthew. And uh, we spent 52 weeks going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Matthew. And when we got to Matthew 15, you know, like six months ago, I remember thinking to myself, why does the Bible say here that Isaiah's prophesied specifically of you? Because here's the thing. Nothing is in the Bible by mistake. There's nothing in the Bible by coincidence. There's nothing. God doesn't add fluff to the word of God. If it's in the Bible, it's in there for a reason. I remember when I was studying this passage out for the Matthew series, you know, six months ago or so, I was, I was curious. Why does the Bible say that Isaiah's prophesied this specifically about the Pharisees in Jesus' time? Because he says, well, did Isaiah's prophesy of you? And I couldn't figure it out. But as I was studying the book of Isaiah, I think I figured it out. And here's why. Notice, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, verse 8, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth. Isn't that the same quote from Isaiah? And honoreth me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Verse 9, But in vain they do worship me, worship me teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now we're going to get to the context, but let me show you why it's important that that Little those two words prophesy these two words of you are there because in Isaiah 29 we have a city named Ariel and there's all this controversy about what's Ariel where's Ariel is Ariel the lost city and Ariel this and Ariel that and you know what you know everybody wants to figure out who's Ariel who's Ariel who's Ariel well here's the thing Isaiah 29 tells us that it is a prophecy to the people of Ariel Jesus, hundreds of years later, says, hey, by the way, that prophecy was about you. Now, here's what's interesting. Look at Matthew 15, look at verse 1. 
Jesus, in Matthew 15, is in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. Jerusalem is in the southern part of Israel. In Matthew 15, 1, the Bible says, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees. Now, there was Pharisees in southern Israel and in northern Israel. But the Bible makes sure to tell us, in verse 1, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Ariel, which were of Jerusalem, saying, You say, well, why did God tell us that they came from Jerusalem? Because later on, Jesus was going to tell us, Hey, by the way, this prophecy was for you. It was about you. Well, who are you? You are the scribes and the Pharisees of Jerusalem. So that proves for us that Ariel is not some mystic city or some city that disappeared into wherever. Ariel is just Jerusalem. And if you look at, uh, if you look at Isaiah 29 in verse 1, I, I mean, it's pretty, it's, it, it makes sense. Look at Isaiah 29 in verse 1 just real quickly. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Isn't that Jerusalem? You know, where David lived? Add ye year to year, Learn, let them kill sacrifices. Isn't that Jerusalem, where the temple was, where the sacrifices were done? So, you know, the Bible, you know, th- throw away your commentary and throw away the, your Google search and just, you know, just study the Bible. The Bible defines itself for us and uh, explains to us there what Ariel is. And people like to get on all sorts of, well, I just think that Ariel is, look, it, it's just, it's, it's a prophecy for the people of Ariel. And Jesus tells us that it was for the Pharisees of Jerusalem. So go back to Matthew 15. Let me just give you a couple things. Matthew 15. You say, well, well, what's wrong with these people? Here's what you got to understand. Do you remember that we talked about the fact that unbelievers do not understand the Bible? So here's what happens. When unbelievers begin to try to teach the Bible, they get it all wrong. Because unbelievers do not understand the Bible. Do you understand what I'm saying? I used to, I, I, I would get so confused. I, I, I was, I was, it was crazy to me because, you know, I would read, we're, we're doing a, a series on, on prayer on Wednesday nights and I've been studying and looking at different subjects on prayer. And it, it always amazes me when you get to the Lord's Prayer, you know, uh, where Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come and all that. Right before Jesus teaches the disciples that prayer, he says to them, I don't want you to pray vain and repetitious prayers like the heathen do. He said, I don't want you to pray these prayers that don't mean, I don't want you to just repeat a bunch of words. He said, that's what the heathen do. He said, I want you to pray like this. And then he gives them a pattern for prayer. And then the Catholic Church comes along and says, hey, I've got an idea. Let's take that, that prayer that Jesus, and let's pray that prayer vain and repetitiously. You know, let's take that prayer and let's pray it over and over and I'll get a a chain with a bunch of beads on it and I'll pray it seven times for this bead and seven times for this bead and seven times for this bead. And, and And the funny thing is, the context, Jesus says, don't pray vain and repetitious prayers. He said, let me show you how to pray. Pray like this, our Father which art in heaven. And then the Catholics come along and say, let's pray that a bunch of times. And I used to think to myself, like, is this a joke? Like, are you serious? But here's the thing, it's not a joke. It's just unbelievers don't understand the Bible. They're spiritually certain. They don't get it. That's why, the, you know, it's fine. The Jehovah's Witnesses, 144,000. Only 144,000 are going to go to heaven and everybody else is going to stay on earth. If you read Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14, do you know that the Bible teaches the exact opposite? That the Bible says that everyone's going to heaven and the 144,000 are coming down to earth during the time of the wrath of God. But the Jehovah's Witnesses say, no, 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 only the 144,000 are going to heaven and uh, everybody else is staying on earth. The exact opposite of what the Bible says. You say, well, why? is it a joke? Is Satan just messing with us? But here's the thing. Unbelievers don't understand the Bible, so they always get it wrong. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they teach this idea of soul sleep, 
When you die, your soul goes to sleep. It doesn't go to heaven. You know, your soul goes to sleep. The Bible teaches the opposite of soul sleep. The Bible says, you know, Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Bible says that when the souls of believers died, they were in the presence of God at the throne of God. What the Bible teaches that goes to sleep is not your soul, but your body. The Bible says your body goes to sleep. So here's the funny thing. The Bible says your soul goes to heaven, your body goes to sleep. The Jehovah's Witnesses get it mixed up. They say, no, your soul goes to sleep. And I would think to myself, really? Like, how did you get that? I mean, that is so messed up. And and, the Bible says over and over and over and over and over again, salvation is not of work. It's not of works. It's not of works. You don't have to do anything. It's free. It's a gift. It's grace. Every religion in the world, you got to do works. Baptism is not required for salvation. You got to get baptized. Repent of your, your, your repent of your sins not even found in Scripture. You got to repent of your unbelief. You got to repent and believe the gospel is what the Bible says. No, you got to repent of your sin, and they get it all wrong. And you say, well, why is that? Here's why it is: unbelievers do not understand the Bible, and these people in these false religions, I hate to break it to you, are not saved. They're not bad people. It's just they don't get, they read the Bible and they don't get it. So here's what they do. Look at Isaiah 29. uh, I'm sorry, uh, Matthew 15. Look at verse 1. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. How? How is it that they honor you with their mouths and with their lips, but their hearts are far from you? Verse 9. But in vain they do worship me. How do they worship in vain? Here's how. Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. See, false religions don't teach you the Bible. They just say, well, our church and our tradition, and let me show you my little pamphlet here, and let me show you my little, you know, magazine here, and this is what the church says, and here's what our tradition is, and they preach, and they preach for commandments the traditions of men. See, you know what we do at Verity Baptist Church? We preach for commandments, the commandments of God. <laughs> we preach the word of God. Nuts to tradition. Nuts to what everybody, you know, well, every, you know that every Baptist believes in the pre-tribulation rapture. Hey, nuts to that. We believe the Bible. Amen. We believe the word of God. But here's what false religions do. They, they don't understand the Bible, so they come up with a bunch of man-made rules and teach for commandments the traditions of men. Says so it because they're evil people? Well, some of them are. Some of them are just misled. Some of them just don't understand. And false religions teach false things. Did you keep your finger in 2 Thessalonians? I don't know if you did. Go, go back to 1 Timothy, chapter number 6. You say, Pastor, man, I think you're preaching a little longer than, uh, than I think you should. Hey, this morning, I, I, I got, you know this morning I preached for 33 minutes? You know what that means? I get an extra 15 minutes tonight, okay? And uh, that's 33 minutes. That's pretty good. It was like vacation for you guys. 1 Timothy, chapter number 6. Look at verse number 20. The problem is when you preach about, you know, having fellowship, then everybody wants to stick around. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. You're, you're welcome to stick around. Outside. No, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at verse 20. No, I'm just, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at verse 20. 1 Timothy 6, 20. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings. And I want you to see this. And the opposition of science, falsely so called. The Bible teaches against not science, but science that is falsely so-called. Go back to Isaiah 29. Look at verse number 16. Isaiah 29, verse uh, number 16. We're talking about unbelievers that are just, uh, they believe they have the truth, right? The first category of those unbelievers are the religious people. And those are the hardest to get saved. 
Because it's like, well, I've been in this church my whole life. My grandpa was a preacher and my great grandma was a preacher and this and that. And I just can't I just can't believe that that's not what the Bible says. And it's like, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that nowhere. In fact, you can't find that in Scripture. Let me show you what the Bible. Well, I just can't believe it's just my tradition. Those are the unbelievers that are religious. But there's another group of unbelievers who think they have the truth. And these are the scientific. But it's a science falsely so-called. Look at Isaiah 29. Look at verse 16. Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For, notice, shall the work say to him that made it, he made me not. Isn't that the world we live in today? The work, is the work going to say to the one that made him, he made me not? Or shall the thing formed say to him that framed it, he had no understanding? And yet today, there are kids, and, and I, and I want to challenge you. If, you. if you have your kids in a public school system, I'm not, I'm not mad at you. I'm just, I'm just warning you. Be very careful because our society today is teaching children that, they, that God does not exist. God is not real. It's a fairy tale. You came from a monkey. It was the Big Bang. It was anything but God. And here's what they're teaching. They're teaching the creation to tell the creator, you didn't make me. No, I, I believe in atheism. I believe in evolution. And there are people who think they are wise. There are people who think they are smart. There are people who have a lot of degrees and a bunch of letters behind their name, and they think they're smart people. But the Bible says that they are fools, because the Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But there are those out there, they think they have the truth, but they don't really have the truth. They're just confused. They just have a bunch of lies. Now, now here's, you say, well, well why, why do you have to preach against false religions? And why do you have to preach against evolution? Why do you have to preach against those things? And here's why. Just let, let me show you this. Go back to Matthew 13, just real quickly. Matthew 13. Remember, we're talking about the different types of unbelievers. Matthew chapter 13. Where I'm going to show you. I've got a couple more pages, and we'll, we'll, we'll do this quickly. Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> you say, well, what, what, what's wrong? What's wrong with being religious and being wrong? What's wrong with being religious and just having the wrong philosophy, having the wrong mentality? Why do you have to talk about the Jehovah's Witnesses? And why do you have to talk about the Mormons? And why do you have to bring up the Catholics? And why do you have to do all this? And listen to me. When we preach against false religion, we're not preaching against the people. We love the people. The people need to be made free. They need the truth, and the truth will make them free. But we are preaching against doctrines that are taught as Bible that were made up by men. We're preaching against religions that are teaching people false ways. You say, well, why does it matter? Here's why it matters. Matthew 13, look at verse 13. Do you know that religious people can become reprobates? Do you know that religious people can get to the place where they've rejected God, and they've rejected God, and they've rejected God, and eventually God will reject them? You say, well, I'm still not convinced about that. Okay, look at Matthew 13. Look at verse 13. If you've got a red letter edition Bible, these, were, these, these uh, verses would be in red because this is Jesus speaking. Notice what Jesus said. And he speak, he's not speaking to people at the bar. He's not speaking to, you know, uh, a rough crowd. Uh, he, he's speaking to religious people. Matthew 13, verse 13. He says, therefore, speak I to them in parables. You say, Jesus is going to explain to us why he preached in parables. People say, well, Jesus taught in parables because they were this really, they were these pretty metaphors and he was so poetic. Okay, that, that's fine. Parables are great. I love parables. But let, let's see why Jesus said he taught in parables. He said in verse 13, Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they, seeing, see not. 
Hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Here we have another prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed. Now notice, he's saying they have eyes, but they've closed them. They have ears, but they won't hear. They don't want the truth. They don't want to understand. They've closed their eyes. Now notice what he says, verse 15. Last. You know, you see that word less there? That means unless. He said, I'm going to preach in parables unless, he said, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their hearts and should be converted. Say, wait a minute. What did Jesus just say? Here's what Jesus said. I'm going to talk in parables because I don't want them to understand. I want them to see me and not perceive. I want them to hear me and not understand. I want them to, to acknowledge what I'm saying but not really get it because I don't want them to see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart. And here's what Jesus is saying. I don't want them to be converted. You say, well, I thought Jesus wanted everybody to be converted. He did initially. But these people, the Pharisees, had rejected truth and rejected truth and rejected truth so much that eventually Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to reject you. I'm done with you. I'm going to speak in parables so you won't even understand. I'll let my disciples know what I'm talking about. I'll explain it to them. But you guys, I don't want you to hear. I don't want you to see. I don't want you to perceive. I don't want you to be converted. See, I don't think you should preach against false religions. Here's the thing. False religions are sending people to hell. And false religions are hardening people's hearts so that they will not hear the gospel. So yes, we will preach against false religions. And yes, we will expose the truth. And yes, we will put light on false doctrines that are sending people to hell. Because these Pharisees were good people. And you might have looked at their marriages and looked at their children and looked at their finances and looked at their house. You would have said, these people got it all put together. But Jesus says you're going to die and go to hell because of your false religion. Go to Romans 16. Look at verse 17. Romans 16, verse 17. We're almost done. Romans 16, verse 17. Romans 16, verse 17. Romans 16 and verse 17. Romans 16, 17 says this. Now I beseech you, brethren. Now I beseech you, brethren. Mark them which cause... The, the word mark there means to... to uh, signal them out, to point them out, to, to, to identify them. He says, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine. He says, if there's somebody who is causing divisions and offenses that are contrary to the doctrine uh, of the Bible, which ye have learned, the doctrine of the Word of God, which ye have learned, the doctrines that you've been taught, that you have learned, he says, mark them, and he says, here's why you need to mark them, which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine, which ye have learned, he says, here's why you want to mark them, that you may avoid them. Do you see that? Mark them and avoid them. So see, we stand up and we say, hey, Billy Graham is a false prophet. Joel Osteen's a false prophet. These people are teaching bad doctrine. Billy Graham doesn't even believe that there's fire in hell. He doesn't even believe hell exists. The Mormons don't believe that Jesus is God. They believe he is the brother of Satan. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus was the archangel Michael. The Catholics say you have to take their sacraments in order to be saved. You say, well, why do you say those things? Because we are to mark them so you can avoid them. Because their doctrines will send you to hell. Because their belief systems will get you to the place where you'll reject truth and you'll reject truth and you'll reject truth and eventually God will say, and even Jesus, while he's preaching, will say, I'm going to preach in parables because I don't even want you to understand what I'm saying. 
I don't even want you. Could you imagine being out soul winning? And, you know, knock on someone's door. I'm going to explain the gospel to you, but I'm going to explain it in pig Latin because I don't want you to get saved. You know what I mean? I mean, that's what Jesus is like. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, but I'm going to say it in parables because I don't want you to hear it, because I don't want you to understand it, because I don't want you to get it, because I don't want you to be converted. Go to Romans chapter 1. Not only does the religion people send us, send people to hell, but the scientific route sends people to hell too. Scientific route can make people a reprobate. Now li listen to me, not everybody who's in a false religion is a reprobate. Do you understand that? But it can lead down that road. And not everybody who's an evolutionist is a reprobate. But it can lead down that road. Notice Romans chapter 1, look at verse 19, Romans 1, 19. We're, we're almost done. I know I said that like four times, but it's getting closer. Romans chapter 1, look at verse 19. Jesus could come at any moment. No, I'm just kidding. Romans 1, 19, look what it says. Because that which may be known of God, Romans 1, 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. Now notice, is what is manifest in them. The word manifest means it's made known. What is made known in them? That which may be known of God. If there's something that you can know about God, it was already manifest in them. For God hath showed. Notice that word showed. The word showed means you can see it. Showed it unto them. Verse 20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Now, here's what he's saying. The invisible things of God are clearly seen. How are they clearly seen? From the creation of the world. Being understood by the things that are made. How do you understand the invisible things of God? Well, you understand them from the creation of the world, and you understand them by the things that are made, His eternal power and Godhead, that they are without excuse. Do you know that no one will stand before God and say, I didn't know. I didn't know. Do you know that you can go to every, the, the, the furthest corner of this earth, and, and people will know and acknowledge that there is a God. You know that the only people who believe that there is no God have to go to school and be taught that, have to go to college and be brainwashed, because every child, every human being that's ever born believes. Now, I'm not saying they believe in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying they believe in the God of the Bible. But every, go, go to whatever tribe in the Amazon, whatever tribe in Africa you want to go to, every person in this world believes in a deity. Because it's manifest in the creation. You look up to the stars. Look, you have to get a four-year education to be able to look at the stars and say, that was an accident. <laughs> you have to be brainwashed for four years to be able to look at creation and say, that was just an explosion. Now notice what the Bible says. For the invisible things, verse 20, of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, verse 21. Because that, notice, because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. So it's not that they never knew God, it's that they knew God, but they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into the image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up. God didn't give up on anybody. He gave up on these people. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, to the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, to change the truth of God into a lie, and worship and serve the creature more than the creator. Notice, they serve the creature more than the creator. 
who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burning their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of the error which was meat. Talking about sodomy. Look at verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they didn't even like to think about God, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. They're rejected to those things which are not convenient. Because here's what you're going to understand. When you teach people that there is no God, when you teach people that we came from nothing, that can eventually lead to someone becoming a reprobate because if they reject God and they reject God and they reject God and they reject God, eventually God says, I'm going to reject you. And in fact, I'm going to reject you so bad that I'm going to preach in parables so you don't understand. I'm going to send a deep sleep so that you cannot comprehend. I'm going to send a delusion because I want you to be damned. These are unbelievers. So what kind of unbelievers are there out there? Unbelievers who have rejected the truth. Unbelievers who do not understand the truth. Unbelievers who think they have the truth, but they don't. They think they have religion, but it's false. They think they have science, but it's falsely so-called. Say, well, Pastor Jimenez, what are we supposed to do with that? Go back to Isaiah 29. Look at verse 18. That's, that's all well and good. And, and I want to make this clear. Not everybody in a false religion is a reprobate. Not everybody who believes in evolution is a reprobate. But you cannot reject God and reject God, and reject God. The Bible says that the Spirit of God shall not always strive with man. Isaiah 29, look at verse 18. Say, well, what do we do? What do we do? How do you fix this? Isaiah 29, verse 18. And in that day, this is the day that was coming for our Isaiah. It already came for us. And in that day, notice what he says, shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Now, this actually happened physically, but one of the reasons that it happened physically is because God was illustrating for us what was happening spiritually. Was there, can you recall a time when someone showed up and all of a sudden people who could not see could see and people who could not hear could hear and people who could not walk could walk and people who could not you know, do things, all of a sudden they were, they were in bondage, but now they were made free? You know when that happened? Look at verse 19. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. If you study that phrase, the Holy One of Israel, you'll find that that is one individual, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, there is one person that when he shows up, the deaf can hear, the blind can see, the lame can walk, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. Jesus did it physically, but do you know that there are people out there in this world right now who are spiritually deaf and spiritually blind and spiritually lame and spiritually confused? But if Jesus would come to them, they could see and they could hear and they could walk. So how does Jesus come to them? Well, Jesus isn't around today, so he sends his ambassadors. That's you and I. That's why Philip had to go to the eunuch and say, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, how can I accept some man should guide me? And Philip gets up in that chair and says, let me show you what the Bible says. Listen to me. Listen to me. The most important thing you can do with your life is to preach the gospel. The most important thing you could do with your life is to open your mouth and take the Bible and explain to someone who's spiritually blind and spiritually deaf and spiritually lame and say, let me tell you about Jesus who can help you see. And let me tell you about Jesus who can help you hear. And let me tell you about Jesus who can restore everything that Satan has taken from you. It's the most important thing you could do with your life. And unfortunately, 
It's usually the last thing that we do as Christians. And our job, you say, why would we spend one night studying unbelievers? Because my job and your job is to go around finding unbelievers and introducing them to the Savior, Jesus Christ. So the question is, how are you doing? How are you doing? Because Jesus isn't here physically today. But if he's in your heart and if he's in my heart, if, he's, if you've got the Spirit, if you've got the Word of God, you can take him. You can take them. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Father, thank you, Lord.